Hello and welcome. You're listening to an episode of Boldly Going Nowhere. I'm George Burton, and I'm not in this episode. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Boldly Going Nowhere. I am your one true host, Jordan Ashcraft. Podcast business, before we do anything else, if you want to email me, you can email me, or us, I guess, technically, at uh, bgnpod at gmail.com with any questions, recommendations, comments, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Recommend this podcast to your friends. Leave us a review on iTunes. You know, all the stuff that you're supposed to do for all your podcasts. Because these are free shows, after all. Uh, This week's recommendation... Is, uh, I have two of them for you. One of them is a book. One of them is a video game. Uh, the book is called Lonesome Dove by Larry Mc... Jeez, uh, how do you say his name? Larry McMurtry? Wow. That is quite the cowboy's name when you say it out loud. Anyways, uh, this book's pretty famous. It won the Pulitzer Prize in 1985. It's really, just, really good. If I had not read Lord of the Rings this year, I would have said that Lonesome Dove is the best book I've read in uh, this year by far. It's definitely the best book, uh, best new book that I've read this year. It is a western, uh, set after the Civil War, towards the end of the 1800s. I'm not quite sure on the, on the decade. I believe it's in the 80s, like the 1880s. I'm not quite sure. Uh, it follows a group of cowboys, ex-rangers from Texas, as they make a cattle drive from Texas to Montana. Uh, the two, well, kind of the two main characters are Call and Augustus, two older men who used to be kind of like real cowboy badasses, like you see in the movies, who are maybe past their prime, but are still more dangerous than most people, but are also realizing on a conscious or subconscious level that this cattle drive is like their last great adventure, their last chance to really do something before old age really sets in. And then it kind of goes from there. It's really... Like, the most melancholy, sad, but, like, quietly sad, like, you almost miss it sometimes, a book that I have read in quite some time. It's really quite good. Um, The characters are good. The language is just really impressive and kind of mind-blowing. It captures, like, a certain kind of, like I said earlier, like a certain kind of melancholy in, um, like, the end of things in a really profoundly beautiful way but it's not like overwhelmingly sad there are a lot of really there are a lot of great moments of like real happiness and um like optimist optimism and characters and people recovering from terrible things and finding a place for themselves in the world so yeah read it it's really good it's also it's like 950 pages so you'll if you get it you'll have a book for months took me like two months to read uh the video game i want to recommend is far cry 5 Far Cry series is a long-standing video game series where you basically run around some place and you kill people. Uh, what's different, or I think what is, what makes this version of that, what makes this entry in the game series a little bit more palatable for me, maybe it's just because it's 2020, is that in the past games you've run around so-called like exotic places. Like uh, one of them was an island, another one was like a version of Tibet. Even though your character is technically like a person from those places often, but not always. Running around killing 
uh, like, uh, uh, what's the right way to say this? Running around injecting yourself into the story in this country, in this world that you really don't know anything about feels a little off-putting in a, like, ooh, I'm progressive, ooh, kind of way. Uh, which doesn't make my feelings any less valid, but it's a very specific thing. But what makes Far Cry 5 different is that you are running around Montana uh, killing a bunch of religious cultist hillbillies. And uh, genuinely and honestly, that makes it a little bit more palatable for me. And maybe that's a bad thing, but I don't know. I don't care. It's really fun. Uh, the action is super fun. The gameplay, the mechanics, the controls are really tight. They're really good. I always find that Far Cry games, about an hour into them, I really... Uh, like sync up with the control schemes and the physics and what the game expects from you and I can, I'm really good at them in a very specific, really weird way. But yeah. Go read that book. And play those video games. We'll play this video game. You don't need to play any of the other ones. They're not connected. They're basically all one standoffs. Like one-offs. Uh, except this one does have a sequel. I haven't started that one yet, so I don't know. Alright, here we go. Aaron Burr, part 3? No, part 4 of Infinity. In early 1800, the whole country must have been looking to the House of Representatives with a nervous gleam in their eyes. Burr and Jefferson had tied, remember? Something wholly new and unexpected in the young country. The ball was now in the House's court, a house not dominated by the Republicans. Even though the Republicans had won both the House and the presidency, nobody had been sworn in yet, and they would not be for a number of months. The current House was not necessarily friendly to Jefferson or Burr, and nobody quite knew what was going to, do, going to happen. What was known was that each state would have one vote, despite however many number members of the House they might have. What was also known was that a winner needed nine states. As things currently stood, Republicans had eight states and Federalists had six, with Vermont and Maryland being split equally among their representatives. I misspoke last episode when I said that Federalists had control of the House. What I should have rather said is that they had leverage. The Republicans could have just voted Jefferson in if they had clear control of nine states, but they didn't. They needed one more state, and Hamilton and the other Federalists knew it. For a moment, the Federalists considered some way to take away the Republican victory and wrest control of the executive branch back into their own hands, but public sentiment dissuaded them of that rather quickly. That and the threat from the Pennsylvania and Virginia governors to march on the Capitol with their state militias if anybody other than Burr or Jefferson were chosen. So, another thing we now know is that it has to be Burr or Jefferson. The Federalists, as a whole, feared Jefferson something fierce. From their point of view, Jefferson was this weird Francophile populist who might discontinue the Navy and Army and support an expansion of the French Revolution across the world. There was real fear that he would revoke the charter of the National Bank and roll back the trade infrastructure that Hamilton and others had spent countless hours and weeks building. He was also thought to be an atheist who might outlaw religion and God. Men and women literally buried their Bibles in hidden places so that his godless thugs would not be able to find them when and if he became president. New England clerics compared him to Beelzebub and warned of a moral purification that would literally cover the land. Federalists, always a tattletist and scared of too much democracy, thought he would upend the balance of power and interconnected nature of the Constitution. Jefferson had a reputation. Burr, on the other hand, seemed rather mild by comparison, as he always does. Certainly more moderate than Jefferson, and more than a few Federalists from the North had successfully worked with him on more than a few projects over the years. What if the Federalists peeled off a few Republican states and formed a coalition behind Burr? He would be in their debt, 
and he seemed malleable enough to many of their concerns. The only Federalist who seemed to fear Burr more than Jefferson was Hamilton. Hamilton will spend much of this crisis ensuring, or attempting to ensure, that the Federalists will not support Burr in any way, and he will almost completely be unsuccessful in his endeavors. Too many Federalists were scared of Jefferson and saw Burr as an absurdly reasonable alternative. But would he go for it? That was the question. This was all moot if Burr said no. But he didn't say no. But he didn't say yes either. Because frankly, if he had said yes, we might be talking about the third president of the United States being Aaron Burr and not Thomas Jefferson. Burr's actions and motivations during this tense, these tense months remain something of a mystery, one we do not have a firm grasp on even today. What we do know is that Burr avoided Washington as much as he could. He attended his daughter's wedding to Joseph Alston, a wealthy farmer from South Carolina. While a very successful man, rich beyond Burr's wildest dreams, Alston seemed to have been in many ways the opposite of Theodosia's father. Reliable, calm, almost boring, maybe. He was, apparently, a rather talented writer, though. Their marriage, possibly motivated by his political ambitions, seemed to have been a respectful and loving one, producing a son year as producing a son a year later in 1802 named Aaron Burr Alston. Alston would prove to be a reliable source of funding for Burr in the years to come and would play a quiet but important role in his adventures out west after Burr served as VP. A small piece of trivia, Joseph and Theodosia are recorded as the first married couple to honeymoon to Niagara Falls. As was the custom for the day, Burr publicly did not stump for the presidency, regardless if he wanted it or not. Privately, he was slightly more ambitious, indicating at least in one letter that he would accept the presidency if someone gave it to him. But he also wrote letters that he would not compete with Jefferson in any way, which, to be fair, he never really did. Regardless of what he actually wanted or was willing to do, rumors flew across Washington. Some say he's accepting the Federalist deal, others say he's not. Nobody really knows because Burr won't say or write anything definitive one way or the other. We do know that Burr received a letter from Albert Gallatin, a Republican and political ally and friend, that the presidency is Aaron's if he would only travel to Washington, D.C. and shake the right hands and say the right things. But he does not. So again, to go the other way on it, he did not denounce anybody trying to make him president either. Voting begins in the House, February 11th, 1801. The stakes are so high that Joseph Nicholson from Maryland, who was deathly ill at the time, laid in a bed outside the chamber, and his wife Rebecca would run in and out with his vote each time they voted. The first vote ends in the expected stalemate, with Jefferson unable to get a ninth vote. It would continue this way for the next three days. And then a week later, all in all, they voted about 35 times with a stalemate every time. Eventually, Federalist James Bayard from Delaware, a political moderate, attempted to strike a deal. Remember, the House is voting by states. In retrospect, kind of weird, but that's how, that's how things were done. And they're still done that way, frankly. With each delegation only having one vote, but not all delegations were created equal. Bayard, due to Delaware's smaller population, was the only member of his delegation. What this meant on a practical level is he could do basically whatever he wanted, and none of the other members of the House could do much against him. So what he did, allegedly, was get some promises out of Jefferson. According to some, Jefferson promised to not defund the Navy in any way, keep one of Bayard's friends in a government job, and preserve the banking and financial system Hamilton had set up. Now, to be fair, Jefferson denied all these deals and swore years, even decades later, that he entered the presidency owing nothing to nobody. But I think it's a little naive to think that some kind of deal was not struck. Bayard could not have been feeling that much heat to make a deal. The country, while agitated, was peaceful still, 
and had been only a week and 31 unsuccessful votes so far. This constitutional crisis, while definitely a crisis with an unknown finale, was not tearing the country apart yet. So Bayard and other congressmen willing to make a deal would have still had time to get concessions. So in all likelihood, a deal of some kind was struck. Plus, in retrospect, Jefferson really did not weaken the Navy, nor did he really go after Hamilton's financial system as much as he could have. If a deal had been struck, Jefferson more or less kept his word. But to be fair again, we don't really know that for sure. So finally, on February 17th, Jefferson wins that elusive last state. The final vote had him winning 10 states and Burr winning just four, with two states abstaining, as was part of the deal. It's important to note, I think, that Burr did nothing wrong or disloyal to Jefferson. He did not pursue the presidency when he could have. He did not, to our knowledge, secretly push for anything or anybody to go around Jefferson's back. This is true, but it's also important to note that he didn't really do anything for Jefferson either. He could have made a public or private declaration that he would not even entertain the idea of the presidency, even if the whole Congress came to him begging him to take the job. But he never made such an ironclad statement. Also, Bayard makes it clear in a letter to his father-in-law that the Federalist attempts to make Burr president were stymied in part because letters that Burr himself wrote. Though again, on the other side, he could have pushed for a deal that got Jefferson the votes quicker. Frankly, he did not do much either way. And I think, in Jefferson's eyes, he looked hopefully inadequate and uh, not being proactive in any way to help Jefferson's cause. <clears throat> As happened with Burr more than a few times throughout his life, he made an oddly naive mistake that would cost him any future in national politics. One wonders if his more insightful wife if his more insightful wife had been around, what he might have been convinced to do differently. In my opinion, this is one of those times where Burr, as smart as he was, just seemed to not see what he ought to do. His very nature had let him down. His aloofness and standoff nature with either political party veiled him from the thoughts of those around him so he could not really see what Jefferson and the other Republican leaders really thought of him and his decisions. And, vice versa, they could not really understand his motivations. Plus, as we will see, some of these men had held real grudges against him, and Burr seemed almost incapable of holding grudges against men, a certain duel notwithstanding. Burr, when he makes mistakes about what drives the men and women around him, often seemed to have blind spots because he could not imagine doing what they very often did. Burr didn't carry grudges, so it was hard for him to imagine that others would. Burr saw politics as a game, an important game, to be sure, but one, as he would later advise future President Martin Van Buren, many decades from now, to have fun with, to enjoy. Other men, Jefferson especially, in this instance, took these things much more seriously than Burr seemed capable of. So, Burr, 46 at the time, enters the Vice President's office, the highest office he will ever achieve, and the nadir of his success, as an odd man out. Now, in some ways, this is not surprising. Historically, the vice president has often stood a man apart from the rest of the administration, a backup for the president and not much more. When FDR died during World War II, Truman didn't even know that the, they were developing an atomic bomb until after he'd been sworn in. Lincoln had little time for either of his vice presidents. Hamilton's refrain in the play that John Adams doesn't have a real job anyway is more than a little accurate. This is hard to imagine in modern times with some with much more important and vital VPs often running entire aspects of an administration's projects and goals. There is simply no way that Jefferson or Adams or Van Buren would place their VP in charge of coordinating the state's response to a national emergency like COVID in the way that Trump did with Pence, at least for a few days. Nobody's in charge of the federal response now. 
whatever. But Burr was even more out of the loop than would be expected. He couldn't even get his friend's cushy jobs in the federal government. Jefferson went completely around him and sought advice for appointments from New York from George Clinton of all people. Within a year, Burr and everybody else who was paying attention knew that he was not going to be on the ticket for Jefferson's second term. There are several reasons for this, not just including his suspicious lack of activity during the election crisis. For one, he was a northerner. Jefferson was a southerner. The parties back then, while building something of a national identity, were still wildly regional and would be for several more decades. Republicans from the South were for the South much more than they were for the party on a national level. And while Northern Republicans did not have quite such an attachment to their homes, nobody outdoes a Southerner when it comes to regional paternalism, they were still more likely to identify with those from their region than just any old Republican. An example of this is the fact that uh, New York Federalists and New York Republicans, despite fighting each other tooth and nail over states, uh, state positions and state elections, often worked together to strengthen or bolster Northern interests, such as a Navy and coastal protections and uh, n uh, northern industry. One of the motivating factors for Joseph to marry Theodosia seems to have been her connection to her father in the larger Republican Party in the New York and New England area. And even though Burr had won the New York had won New York for Jefferson, thus sealing the deal for him, he was never considered by anybody to be Jefferson's political or philosophical heir. That was the likes of Madison and Monroe, both men who would become president. Plus, Jefferson doesn't seem to have liked him very much. Those feelings for Burr are hard to parse with how both men would spend Jefferson's second term, which we will get to. Suffice to say for now, Jefferson might never have liked him much and just recognized a political ally when he saw one, or his bad feelings might have developed later. Whatever. This ice out extended... Ooh, ooh, text message. Hold on. Doobie-doo. Oh, it's a picture of me. I had lunch today with my grandma. Alright, where were we? This ice out extended all the way back to his home state, where the Clinton and Livingston factions of the Republican Party were able to filled literally thousands of jobs, while Burr, Vice President of the United States of America, was only able to get five jobs for five of his friends. Five. Yikes. From above and below, national and state level, Burr was a man isolated from any real avenues of power. Uh, this political weakness encouraged his enemies in early 1801 to release a handbill entitled Air Burr, with an explanation point at the end, which attacked Burr's sexual habits. If Jefferson was a godless atheist, then his vice president was a man who could not keep it in his pants. So, let's talk about sex. But only real quick. Relax, Mom. The sexual mores of the time were fairly straightforward. Prostitution was legal and super-duper common. Sexual indiscretions were common and often ignored, unless they broke into the public, like Hamilton's affair with Maria Reynolds in the Reynolds pamphlet, which we're not really going to discuss. Well, we're not going to discuss it this episode. We're probably going to talk about it next episode. Marriage and family were important, of course, but unlike in other places and times for this era, being single was not seen as a bad thing, per se. While Burr wouldn't get married for many more decades, he did see a number of women over the years, getting close to marriage a few times, especially during this time, when he was kind of bored. He also frequented prostitutes on a regular basis, both now and later. He also fathered more than a few kids, but we will uh, recount them later. Sexually liberated for any time, frankly even today, Burr enjoyed a robust and ongoing love life well into his later years, with few of the repercussions you might think he would face during the late 1700s and early 1800s. Burr was, overall, bored during his tenure as vice president, which doesn't mean he didn't do anything. Unlike John Adams, to a certain degree, Burr took a pointed interest in the running of the Senate. He outlawed eating during sessions, he enforced a dress code, 
When senators slouched in their seats or seemed to be nine off, he admonished them and woke them up. He brought a certain sense of professionalism and decorum to the Senate that had been missing. Being vice president also meant he had daily sessions of the Senate to literally oversee. So he attended Senate uh, meetings every day. Broadly speaking, the Senate back then functioned similarly to how it does today. Each state had two senators, and they could volunteer bills and laws, pass them or modify them. They could authorize certain kinds of federal funding, launch investigations, and a host of other things. January 1802 saw them fighting over the Judiciary Act of 1801, a last-minute last bit of lawmaking by the previous Senate, the previously Federalist Senate, and John Adams. The Act itself, the Act, both itself and reactions to it, were hugely important. So let's talk about them, beyond how they just affect Aaron Burr. The Judiciary Act of 1801 was passed after Adams lost the election in November, but before Jefferson was sworn in, which would have been early March back then. You think it takes a long time now? They had two extra months to wait for the next president to actually become president. It reorganized the judiciary by stripping the Supreme Court justices of their circuit court responsibilities and established the first independent circuit court judgeships in the country, which are still around today, even though they function and look a bit different. Then, as now, they serve as an intermediate stop for cases that could go all the way to the Supreme Court. They take some of the workload off the Supreme Court in several ways, the most important one being that if they make a decision that the uh, Supreme Court agrees with, uh, the Supreme Court often won't even take the case and just let the lesser court decision stand. All in all, there were 16 positions that Adams got to fill in the months after he lost the election to Jefferson, but before Jefferson was actually sworn in. Adams was also able to nominate a slew of judges in the newly created District of Columbia. He nominated those judges on March 2nd, got them confirmed the next day, and had till noon on the 4th, when Jefferson was going to be sworn in, to get their official commission signed, sealed, and delivered. Due to time constraints and maybe bad planning, I don't understand why their paper wasn't ready to go before the 3rd, Adams failed to get the commissions actually delivered to 23 of the D.C. judges before his term was up. Jefferson, after being sworn in, literally walked into his new office and discovered the undelivered commissions just sitting there. He confirmed the many liked, but refused to commission the 11 others. Most of the latter group moved on with their lives, but William Marbury, a Federalist from Maryland, forced the issue in court. His name might sound familiar because his name might sound familiar to you as Marbury v. Madison in 1803, the single most important case in U.S. history. The court's ruling on the case created the doctrine of judicial review, which granted the courts the authority and power to examine if the actions of the legislative and executive branches of the government were constitutional, something that was not explicitly written into the Constitution. It is the single most powerful and important power the judicial branch has. And frankly, if you think about it, without it, how I don't even understand how the judicial branch would function as a allegedly co-equal branch of the other two branches. It's kind of wild that they weren't granted this power in the Constitution, but there you have it. A foundational aspect of our country and our entire legal system was created because Adams tried to get some judges in at the last minute. These so-called midnight judges caused a stir in the young country, and Congress was still dealing with the fallout a year later. Jefferson was convinced, because Jefferson was a little paranoid, in all things, that the act and late-night judges were an attempt to create a fifth column within the government that would bedevil him for years. Burr, as was his way, was stuck in the middle. He privately concluded that he probably sided with the Federalists in the matter, that the judges should stick. But he knew that he could not go against his party so quickly in the new administration. Remember, this is still early enough in the Jefferson's presidency where uh, Burr hasn't come to the conclusion that he's just going to be out in four years. One of his concerns about repealing the law, repealing the law was a practical one. Many of the judges had started doing their job despite not fully and technically receiving their commissions. 
Was it right to deprive them of jobs and income? Burr, a man always concerned about money, wasn't so sure. Burr, as president of the Senate, had to ended up having to break two ties in the matter. The first tiebreaker kept the bill to repeal alive, thus angering the Federalists. Eventually, after much argument, a moderate proposal was suggested. The act would be recommended to a joint committee between the parties that would work out modifications to the Judiciary Act, thus potentially saving it from complete repeal. The vote for this well-reasoned solution ended up a tie again, since some Republicans had not been able to attend Senate to attend the Senate session where the vote was being held. And then, as now, you had to be in person to vote. So Burr ended up being the tiebreaker. He voted yes, thus saving the Judiciary Act, even if only in modified form. Many folks from both parties congratulated him on such a wise and bipartisan move. Many did not. And that second group of many included Jefferson and most of his inner circle, in many ways the most important people Burr needed to contend with. All of this was ultimately pointless. The Republicans were eventually able to round up all their members in one place and at one time and ultimately force the Judiciary Act of 1801 to be repealed. So, in classic Burr fashion, he makes a wise, reasonable, steady move, and then doesn't matter. Just people bulldoze his ideas and uh, everyone moves on. The anger and betrayal vented in Burr's direction convinced him to do something he had probably been considering for some time, leave the Republican Party. His actions during the Judiciary Act debate would be his last as a member of the Republican Party in good standing. Less than a month later, he would attend a Federalist function, a party celebrating Washington's birthday. And this was essentially his coming out party as being a political independent. Not that this would ever pay off for him in any real way. Though again, I will point out, it's pertinent to note that Burr could have just sided with the Federalists from the very beginning, thus gaining their loyalty, loyalty that might have extended to a nomination in 1804. The Federalists were a party in slow retreat and did not have many prominent men of the skill and caliber to run for president. Burr, for all of his faults, was that kind of man. Burr would have had to have been aware of this possibility, had been informed as such by some friendly Federalists, in fact, but still chose not to pursue that path. The highlight of this period for Burr was the birth of his one and only grandson, Aaron Burr, provost. Wait, no, that's not his last name. <laughs> Aaron Burr Alston in May of 1802. Burr would devote almost as much time to his young grandson as he did to Theodosia, guiding and encouraging his education even when he was hundreds or thousands of miles away. Abigail Adams was quoted as saying when she met him one random day that Aaron Burr would talk of nothing else but his grandson and, and quote, you would think to hear him that no man in the world had ever been a grandfather before, unquote. Which I think is probably the best compliment or best backhanded compliment you could give a new grandparent. During these early years of the Republic, pamphlets were the preferred way to attack your opponents and defend your allies. Word got to Burr that, they smear, that a smear job of the John Adams administration, titled The History of the Administration of John Adams, Late President of the United States, would soon hit the market. Pamphlets were, um, they were like, depending on how long they were, they are basically like a magazine or they were like a book. Sometimes they were 50 pages long, sometimes they were hundreds of pages long. And they were sold often at bookstores and like at newspaper stands or the equivalent. Burr got an early edition of the pamphlet and decided that it was so clearly full of Republican slander and libel that it could in fact only harm the Republicans' cause and tried to get it suppressed. That, or he tried to get it suppressed because it slandered him as well. Who knows? Either way, he offered to buy the whole run, some 1,200 copies, but by most accounts, either failed to pay at all or on time. Regardless, the pamphlet went on sale in June of 1801, marketed it as the book the vice president doesn't want you to read. 
Thus started the pamphlet wars of 1802 to 1804, a war I'm sure you have never heard of. A time, this was a time of increased attacks on various politicians by other various politicians, either directly, but most often through a number of proxies, mostly through writers and editors hired or financially directed by either political party. Burr himself helped fund a few papers, and richer men, such as Jefferson, paid men for years to be their attack dogs in the presses. Uh, people, uh, Politicians also would write their own screeds against each other and then just publish under a pen name of some kind. Like how the the writers of the Federalist Papers wrote, signed their paper their essays under false names. One of the men Burr helped, one of the men Burr helped out early in their career, James Cheatham, worked closely with Burr in the years before he became VP. It was most likely Burr who financed Cheatham's purchase of a newspaper called the Argus, which would eventually merge with another one to become the American Citizen. The problem for Burr was that his former ally had become the unofficial mouthpiece of the Clinton faction in New York and wasted no time in attacking Burr in the public eye in a rapid and ruthless fashion. He published, over the course of two years, he published four long and vicious attacks against Burr, which of course provoked equally vicious but not quite as well written attacks on Cheatham and anybody who dared support his side in this paper fight. While in general these attacks eventually did, eventually these attacks did die down, Cheatham would not give an inch to Burr till he was truly in the wilderness, both politically and literally, as we will see. For once, for once in his life, Burr retaliated, starring a mouthpiece newspaper of his own called the Morning Chronicle. Men also rose to Burr's defense. John, a man named John Wood wrote a pamphlet with the truly insane name of <clears throat> A Correct Statement of the Various Sources from Which the History of the Administration of John Adams Was Compiled and the Motives for Its Suppressions for its suppression by Colonel, Colonel Burr. Jeez. Unexpected aid came from the Evening Post, normally the mouthpiece of Alexander Hamilton, but whose editor was William Coleman, a one-time law partner of Burr. This is an important note, I think, on the character of Burr. Those who had the time and space to work with him, outside of politics, seemed to stick by him more than they otherwise might. Burr's loyalty to his friends was, eh, maybe not famous, but well-known, and was often returned in whatever way they were able. Burr is about to enter a real uh, personal and political and uh, economic wilderness of his life, and he often relies on friends to take care of him, and they take care of him with few, if any, complaints, but more on that later. More pamphlets were published, but unfortunately, I cannot read them to you, and I wish I could, because they do not appear to be readily accessible online. As best I can tell, they are all buried in archives and on microfilm, and just thinking about microfilm gives me nightmares from my time in college. The pamphlet war spilled over into actual violence. Duels began to pop up around Burr. His close friend, Robert Swartwout, dueled Richard Riker, a proxy for the Livingston political faction. DeWitt Clinton, new head of the Clinton faction and up-and-coming uh, young politician superstar, shot a Burrite and muttered that he had wished it had been Burr he was shooting instead. Coleman challenged Cheatham, who quickly backed down. So, Cheatham is a coward but also maybe a wise man in the end the pamphlet war came to a close primarily because such heated words often cannot be exchanged forever and because as you will see burr is about to leave the wet the east coast strangely and not for the first time burr gathered evidence and depositions to sue cheatham for libel but never did anything about it once again burr's lack of follow-through is a mystery burr came out of the whole thing much the worse for wear. He had not reacted quickly to the attacks, and he never responded with enough force or verve to truly counter what was going on in the in the public square. Burr was a man of action, but this kind of fight was never going to see him at his best. The pamphlet war was one of the few times he even deigned to respond to propaganda. 
He felt it was beneath a gentleman of himself, and he believed his friends and allies had the good sense to not believe anything bad about him, which, you know, is a nice sentiment, but inadequate for a public life. Burr's lighthearted take to politics, his belief that it should often be fun and for benefit, dulled his metaphorical sword when it came to the actual combat and work of politics. Though it should be noted, in his personal correspondence, he seems to have been legitimately angry at Cheatham and others and the way he had been treated. This rising sense of anger is important. Early 1804 saw Burr uh, bored in a routine, but with the end of his time as VP, finally in sight. The Republicans officially replaced him on the ticket with his old enemy, George Clinton, who was by this time an old man and viewed the vice presidency with no ambition or threat to the coming Virginian dynasty that would dominate U.S. politics for quite some time. So Jefferson was happy to replace Burr, a man with some ambition, with an older man like Clinton who had none. Burr arrived at three options for what he could do after his time as vice president was up. He could head west to seek his fortune, reopen his legal practice, or, or... He could run for governor of New York. Eventually, he settled on the third option, arriving back in New York in early February of 1804 to set up his campaign. From the beginning, he knew he would have to run as an independent. The Republican Party was far too hostile for him to seduce them yet again. But there was an interesting development. The Federalists had been pretty well thrashed in state politics and did not have an obvious member to run against the Republican candidate, a mild-mannered and forgettable man named Morgan Lewis. Could they, would they, dare they, tie their fortunes to one Aaron Burr? It was not such an insane thought. Just remind yourself of what uh, they thought about him when they were choosing between him and Jefferson. One man was not having it. He would not stand for it. The very thought sickened him, and that man was Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton was in an odd place, politically speaking. His vicious attacks and what was essentially a coup d'etat attempt against John Adams in 1800 had rent the party asunder, almost literally. He was a host unto himself and no more, and had become a venerated but often ignored elder, not even 50 years old at the time, of his party, the party that he had helped build. At the equivalent of a party convention, Hamilton's fiery speech against Burr went mostly unheeded and was written off by even his closest friends as a product of personal resentment between him and Burr, which was, all in all, a fair point. By this time, Hamilton's feelings about Burr were absurdly clear and were absurdly, to most people, over the top. He hated and feared the man. He hated his moderate tone on so many things and feared what he might do if he won the governor's seat. Because, and I had no idea this was a thing before I begun my research, there was succession in the air. And Hamilton knew more than most. The New England Successionist Movement was actually three movements between 1800 and 1815 where men of talent and ability seriously considered how to break away New England from the USA. But for this story, we're only going to be talking about the first moment. Similar to the South in 50 years' time, their stated reason was essentially states' rights and a loyalty to federalism. The country was growing up, and with that growth came a more robust federal government, though by no means as robust as you or I would imagine. But its power and influence had definitely grown since the days of George Washington. I would say that some, if not most of this growth, was necessary, but men who had fought a war against a monarchy and the generation of men they had raised since then would disagree. They were not really capable of seeing what the country needed, that all they could see was the diminishing might and power of the New England area. And by men of talent, I mean even future presidents and congressmen. John Quincy Adams, son of John Adams, was involved in this movement for a time. Also of importance is that the Louisiana Purchase had just happened, thus doubling the size of the country, thus not only like economically, politically, uh, culturally diminishing the New England area, but literally geographically diminishing their importance too. New England literally became a smaller part of the country after the Louisiana Purchase. They also kind of hated 
Thomas Jefferson personally and specifically. These New England men thought that public virtue and private virtue were one and the same, and that they were only possible by organized religion. Organized religion being the important part of that sentence. Jefferson was by far the most dedicated defender of the idea of the separation of church and state, something not actually in the Constitution, but probably should be. So, a combination of ardent states' rights, fear of a growing central government with a godless atheist at its head, scared these people something fierce. What I found most interesting about them is that they correctly predicted the immense difficulty the country would have governing over a larger and larger area filled with more and more people who had different motives and goals and worldviews. Is America simply too big to effectively deal with the myriad problems it faces? Maybe. Would we be better off if we had just split up from the beginning into robust and smaller countries and federations that would certainly aid and trade with each other, speak a common language, broadly speaking have a common religion? but not actually rule each other? Who knows? Ultimately, I don't think so, but it's an interesting question nonetheless. Also of importance, and important specifically to Aaron Burr later in his life when he heads west, is the fact that at this time, talk of succession was not strictly treasonous or outlandish as it often appears to be today. Basically, nobody questioned a state and that state's right to leave the Union if they so desired. Jefferson had basically said as much in the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions six years earlier, and he was president. Many folks in all regions of the country did not expect the United States of America to last much beyond their lifetime and um, like calmly and without much fuss expected different regions to naturally break off from each other as the years rolled by. The wisdom of succession might be questioned, and it was. Uh, also what questioned was the mechanism for succession, but the morality and legality of such a decision was not in question. It would not be settled until the Civil War, where Lincoln basically put the idea to rest for all time. Looking at you, Texas and California secessionists. Bunch of weirdos. Also, in case you are too fond of these New Englanders, they were often virulent racists who viewed all outsiders and folks without English ancestry and who didn't go to the right church as godless heathens and something to be feared. You know. Just in case. In 1804, at least on paper some of these men were ready to go. Massachusetts would get the ball rolling in New Hampshire, Rhode Island, Vermont, New York, New Jersey, and most of Pennsylvania would soon follow. But even then, New York was the linchpin. The leaders of the conspiracy met with Burr several times during the campaign. They left feeling good about what Burr had said, but upon reflection, later that evening, one of them opined that, quote, nothing he said necessarily implied his approbation, and perhaps no man's language was ever more apparently explicit and at the same time so covert and indefinite, unquote. So, you know, classic Burr. Sounds good in the moment, but seems much more nebulous the more you think about what he actually said. Non-committal, as ever. Burr had much in common with these men. He feared Virginia as much as any of them. Virginia if you, is basically a proxy for the South as a whole, if you think about it. And for a while, these fears would prove justified. Except for John Adams, Virginians were president for 32 of the possible 36 years of the country's entire existence. They set the tone in any number of ways that affected us to affect us to this very day. Um, a clear example of this is the Monroe Doctrine, which was our defining doctrine in uh, foreign affairs for like over 100 years, or almost 100 years. Burr, Burr believed that New York must rule Virginia, or Virginia would rule New York. And at the time, this seemed like an open question, though now it seems kind of ridiculous. Virginia has not been that important on the national stage since the Civil War. In 1804, though, this was not out of the question. Virginia was a robust state full of rich and educated farmers who sought to shape the country in their own image. 
it was also a state full of slaves who, due to the three-fifths compromise, gave uh, Virginia a lot more federal power than it otherwise would. For what it's worth, I do not think Burr would have actually gone along with this northern succession. It did not seem like a sure thing. Uh, even though people were uh, theoretically okay with succession, a succession had never actually happened. And, in retrospect, the first time a succession did really happen, the Civil War, everyone agreed to kill a lot of people in order to keep the South in the Union. It also seems dubious that he would risk his newly resurrected political career for something so uncertain. And look, I know this sounds kind of crazy, considering that when we go west with him, next episode, or maybe the episode after, he flirts with treason in succession yet again. But I just don't see it in him. I really don't. For all of his virtues, he was not a firebrand, which frankly might be one of his secret virtues. Participating in another revolution seems a bit much for our guy. Of interesting note, though, is that this context changes Hamilton's motivations a little bit. Did he summon fire and brimstone out of personal animosity for Burr? For sure. Did he also do so because he feared that Burr and his Federalist allies might do if they won control of New York? Maybe. Possibly. Hamilton was, if nothing else, an ardent nationalist and would not have supported succession. In the end, Burr's commitment to the Union was never put to a real test. Even with the backing of the Federalists and the theory that some moderate Republicans would join him. Sound familiar, Joe Biden? Hmm? He lost. He lost badly. He lost by the largest margin New York had seen up till then. Setting records, left and right, Aaron Burr. His campaign, from a modern point of view, was largely a noble one. He ran primarily as a reformer uh, who wanted to expand the voter base and made the election process in New York more democratic. He sought to lower land requirements. He was heralded as a superior soul with open-minded goals and morals. Basically, a progressive in a, in a way, in a very specific way. Don't get, don't take that too far. His campaign heralded him as a uniquely American success story, having risen from an orphan to the VP, to the vice presidency. Never mind his well-funded brothers and uncles taking care of him, but maybe that makes him a uniquely successful American when you look at things how they how things go now. Why aren't you scrolling? This noble strategy wilted under the fire from Cheatham and others, who only uh, lower who only went lower in their attacks. He called the Burrites uh, a nickname for Aaron Burr's uh, close circle of loyal lieutenants. I don't think I've said that before, but yeah, they were called the Burrites. He called them strolling players. A slang word for male prostitutes, which, uh, as far as slang go, is not a bad, not a bad phrase. He accused Burr of every sexual deviance of the time he could think of, from sex with young men to cross-dressing to sodomy. A quick note on sodomy, because it's a word you probably have heard, but you probably don't know exactly what it means, and also what you think it means probably is not what it has always meant. Um, in a general sense, sodomy, back when, like, sodomy laws were, like, a real thing, and they still are kind of a thing, but they've been repealed over the years, obviously. Sodomy often was defined as basically any sexual, uh, inter- or sexual activity that was not, rec- or, uh, not recreational. <laughs> the opposite of that. It was any sexual action, activity that was not, um, pro, uh, like, procreational, if that's even a word. You know what I mean? Like, it was an act that could not, at least theoretically, result in a pregnancy. So, like, even married couples were charged with sodomy if they were doing the wrong thing. You probably think of sodomy as having to do with, like, anal sex between two uh, gay men, and that is certainly often the case. And many sodomy laws were um, created simply to target homosexual men. But that's not the limits of it. It it could be almost anything. 
depending upon what they put in the law um, under their as a definition of sodomy. It could be sex with an animal. It could be even oral sex, even between like a heterosexual couple. It could be um, it could be anal sex between a heterosexual couple. It could be anal sex with a homosexual couple. It could be oral sex with anybody, anything. Um, it was broad, and it was not. It's tricky because it's tough. In 1800 America, the the I'm trying to think how to say this. What they would have thought about the existence of homosexuality, like as a sexual identity, even if it's the one they disapprove of, is not what we think of. Often in the past, they didn't think of you as being a homosexual. They just thought of you as being guilty of a homosexual act or a act of sodomy. But that did not necessarily mean that you were gay or bisexual or whatever. It just meant that you, in a moment, convicted or... um did this what they saw as a terrible crime and were guilty of that act even if the uh larger idea that you were gay or whatever didn't even occur to them so in this case they were probably accusing aaron burr of like any sexual act like the reader's imagination could spring up it was like a broad insult or broad accusation He accused Burr of buying votes with sexual favors and hosting orgies in his campaign headquarters. All this took its toll, which explains much of why he lost. But also of importance are the actions of Hamilton, who sought to convince anybody and everybody to not vote for Burr. Records show that for almost every Republican that voted for Burr, a Federalist voted for Lewis. Burr's cross-party appeal had been nullified. Surely this was the work of Hamilton as much as anybody else. But beyond all that, Burr was a man caught in the middle. Remember, the Republican Party at the time was not national, for, as I've said a million times now. Virginians were not loyal to New Yorkers and vice versa. Jefferson had needed him to win New York, true, and he had done so in truly spectacular fashion. Without Aaron Burr, there probably is not a Jefferson presidency, certainly not in 1800, maybe not ever. But after that victory, and Jefferson's easy victory of Rufus King in 1804 for a second term, Jefferson needed Burr out so he could move James Madison into the heir apparent slot, which is what he did. DeWitt Clinton, while not as talented a politician as others, needed Burr gone so he could rise in power in the state politics of New York. When you add that pressure from above and below yet again, along with Burr's pre-existing baggage, along with him keeping everyone of importance at arm's length, it's not surprising that he lost yet again. Burr was at a real crossroads, and the nastiness of the race had left him angry in a way he had not expressed experience before. And so it was that in April of 1804, a... A quietly pissed Burr read about some insults Hamilton had made about him in a local newspaper. Next time, duels and one last time in the Senate. Arriving back in New York in early February, in <laughs> can't fucking rain today. The very thought sickened him, and that man was Alexander Hamilton. Oh, I don't know why that makes me laugh for. <laughs>
Uh, 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 uh,